go ahead and get started on time and respect the hour. Um, let us go into the, uh, go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we thank you, Lord, for another day, Lord. Uh, we thank you for your presence and your word, my Father. We thank you for allowing us to see another sunrise, Lord God. Lord, we thank you, Lord, that our bodies can feel the cold and the warmth. Lord, we pray, Lord, as we enter your word and we rest and get comforted in it, my Father, that we'll be not only hearers but doers of your word, Lord. And if there's someone here who don't know you, my Father, we pray that you would soften their heart, Lord, and that you would change them, Lord, like only you can, Lord, as the word is planted and, and watered. We know that you give the increase. Uh, be with us, Lord, as we travel through your scriptures. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So last week, Brother Scott left the people of Israel in Egypt. <laughs> As he told me, Glenn, bring them out. <laughs> well, as we start the uh, book of Exodus, it was very interesting because when the new year hit, um, uh, I got an email um, from a particular site uh, about things that were entering public domain. And what do you know that the, the very thing that was entering the public domain was Exodus, the, uh, the original, that film with Charleston Heston. Uh, how many are familiar with that, right? The classic, all right? Now, in looking at that, I remember growing up, that for a long time was my depiction of the Bible. Uh, we looked towards movies and, and things like that and what we saw. So while Exodus may be a good story for Hollywood about a strong pharaoh uh, with a people called the Hebrews and a young baby in the water being drawn out, becoming an Egyptian prince who one day will come back and rescue his people from slavery sounds like a great Hollywood production. And, and maybe so. However... That is not the full story, for it's not even close, all right? So for a long time, many people, sadly so, get their theology from movies or from books uh, that try to depict what the Bible is actually saying. But we cannot be naive to think that Hollywood has God's best interests in mind. So we have to be good, what, Bereans, right, and study the scriptures so we're ready to give a defense for the truth uh, that we believe, and that's within us. So we pick up here in Exodus, around 275 to 300 years from the last verse in, in uh, Genesis. And it's very interesting when we read the scriptures and we read paragraphs and we turn pages, all right? We figure there's 365 days in a year. So if you were to get a wall calendar, and wall calendar may be that thin. So if you multiply that times 300, how thick would it be? So when you turn your page from the end chapter of Genesis to Exodus chapter 1, you're doing this. Boom! Okay? You're turning a lot of pages. And, for, and, and sometimes our perception of time um, is, not, is not in view when we're reading scripture. Okay? But re, the reality is 300 years have passed. And so what do we have here? So Exodus, the genre, 
is a historical narrative, not just some fairy tale, uh, not just some story or bedtime story that we tell our children, all right? Uh, God has uniquely used the life and history of people to explain and to give his theology to us. And this is what separates the Bible from any other book, right? Uh, the Bible filled with 66 books is more like a library in the palm of our hands. How, how awesome is that? So we can date the book of Exodus around 1450 to 1400 B.C. Of course, this has not come without debates by historians. As a matter of fact, Egyptian history is, is very convoluted. It's really not intact. So they actually rely on biblical history to even combat the natural history. Uh, when we say natural history, we're talking about people who, per se, who don't focus on the word of God, but focus on just the natural history of man. Okay, so they actually rely on our text to bring their history to life. In reality, the Bible is history in itself. Okay. So as we move forward, uh, we see that uh, we're going to lay out Exodus 1 through 19. And I'll start by giving you an overview of the scene. We see the prophecy in Genesis 15, 13. Then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. You see all the promises uh, made to Abraham have yet to been fulfilled. But we do start to see a hint of the prophecy being fulfilled in Exodus 1.7. It says, But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. All right. So we see about this time and historically how big and how vast did they grow? Well, the number was around 2.5 to 3 million. Okay. So you can imagine this group of people who came in to escape the famine. Joseph's family has grown to this, to this number of uh, maybe a couple hundred thousand to millions, all right, over this span of time. So definitely they were being fruitful and multiplying. Now, if we also set the scene, we look. The Pharaoh during Joseph's time granted them passage, and they even had a place in Goshen. However, was this the promised land? I mean, they were fruitful. They had many numbers, and they even had their own section of Egypt carved out in Goshen. But this was far from the promise. So Exodus 1, 8 and 10 will set up this unique scene. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. I love how God does this. God always sets up the scene for his entrance. You see, imagine coming from your land to a foreign land because of a famine, escaping it. The Pharaoh at the time welcomed Joseph's people and his family. Matter of fact, they were not slaves. They were uh, joint, and they, they, they worked together, they developed together, and they grew together. And it, would, it pleased this Pharaoh to invite Joseph's family in. For Joseph did great things for the people of Egypt. He saved them from the famine. Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. 
And this is what the new king says. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. You see, great growth of Israel put fear in this Pharaoh's heart. He did not care what was set up before this Pharaoh. He's like, look, I don't know what arrangement you had. I don't even care who Joseph was. I'm in charge now. You are being too great, and now I'm going to put it into it. So the irony is he wanted to destroy all the firstborn. And we see him wanting to cast the firstborns into the river, and so he did. But Moses was spared. And there lies the premise of our story, that God sovereignly was starting to fulfill his promises. Although we see that the promises were yet to be fulfilled, were in the making. So God will soon demand through the voice of his servant Moses to let his people go to worship him. God foretells that Pharaoh will not let them go. And we will see why here shortly. Um, you see that it was his own premise that Pharaoh hated these people. He hated their God. And he did not want to let them go. They were busy building what? The pyramids, right? For 400 years. So we see that God had already predestined these events. It says, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. We also see here in chapter 13 that Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. For Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. So at this point I want to bring up, how would Moses even know that? Think about it. The information had to be passed down, correct? This information of what Joseph said and had promised had went through all these generations over 300 years and reached the ears of Moses. And we see that when they exit, Moses does indeed carry his bones away towards the promised land. So even Joseph had faith in a promise. It was a sure thing for him. And even though he knew that his family would seek temporary refuge in Egypt, he knew that that was not their family dwelling place. And so we see the scene of the plagues. We see the bloody now. We see the frogs. We see the gnats. Those plagues were upon all. Matter of fact, the Israel Hebrews were not separate in these plagues. They were not distinct. For all felt the effects of those. It wasn't until the fourth to the tenth plague, or plagues four through nine, on where the Lord distinguished between those in Egypt and those of his people. So God set a precedent that he would have these plagues over the whole land. And then he said, hey, these are my people, and I'm going to separate them. I'm going to let you see this pagan nation. He's going to let this pagan nation see that my people are indeed different and separate. So let's take us some of the themes that we see here in Exodus. We see that uh, Pharaoh's heart had a hate toward God and his people in such a way that all logical thinking went out the window. I mean, you would think that after seeing all these plagues come about, that he would let the people go. But why not? Matter of fact, you see some games that Pharaoh played. You will see when you read, you will see that, oh, these plagues come. Okay, let your people go. 
okay, well, they can go for a temporary time, but they would have to come back. He said, no, let my people go. He said, okay, they can go. And they said, no, they're not going anywhere. And another plague, plague came, and another plague came. And so we will see that God used this Pharaoh to display his great power. So first theme I would like to talk about is God's unique identity. God was focused on making sure the people of Israel and pagan nations knew for certain who he is. If you look at Exodus 3, 13 and 14, we see then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they asked me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, what did he say? I am who I am. And he said this, he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent you. You see, the word of God used here in the Hebrew is Elohim. It is a supreme plural, three yet one, and it's, a, and it's masculine, and he represents the only one true God. You see, words were important, and there's no, there's no mistake that we have in concordance uh, that refers back to the Hebrew words, and it's very specific. God wanted to know that he, that he wanted to be referred to in a masculine and that he was triune. Right. And that goes back to Genesis when he said, let who make man in our image? Let us make man in what? Our image. So we see the first signs of the Trinity right there. So there is no mistake that he's using this unique Hebrew word. The supreme Elohim. Represented the triune God. Now, this word I am, the world is not foreign to. As a matter of fact, there's an artist. His name is William. And he considers himself a God. As a matter of fact, he actually hyphenates his name, Will I Am. As many people call themselves I Am and they call themselves gods because they want to mock our God. And we'll see through this exodus that God is making sure that he will not be mocked. And that he is who he said he is, the one and only Elohim. Now, the word I am, which he used here, is ayah, ayah. It's interesting that the spelling of this word is in the Hebrew, hey, yod, hey. And the American and the English is H-A-Y-A-H, H-A-Y-A-H. So the Hebrew spelling of this word and the English spelling of this word, what do you get when you spell it backwards? The same thing. It's very unique that God would choose this name to represent himself. It's very interesting that he would use this particular name to represent himself. Um, and it's also interesting that the number in the concordance is 1961. When you invert that number, it's still 1961. There is no mistake about it. God has a purpose and reason for using this name. You see, God had raised Pharaoh to great power, and little did the Egyptian king know that this question would lead to the Lord's great display of his power. And what question was that? In Exodus 5, 2, but Pharaoh said, 
Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let his people go? As a matter of fact, when Moses came, he always used this preface, this preface, preface. Thus says the Lord. Thus says the Lord. Thus says the Lord. This is used over six times, or actually over ten times in Exodus. Thus says the Lord. I remember when uh, growing up, I would be outside playing, and all of a sudden, I would say, I would hear my sister yell. She would say, hey, get inside now. And I remember looking at her like, who are you? And then she would say, dad said. (laughs) Now, she should have led with that. (laughs) Right? (laughs) However, it it wasn't the fact that my sister who was speaking, but it was a whom she was speaking for. And so it is with Moses. Moses prefaced everything with what? Thus says the Lord. And we see that Moses was merely a mouthpiece. Uh, matter of fact, the Egyptians actually mocked this. Turn to your Bibles to Exodus 5.10. Exodus 5.10. And somebody has that, if you would just read it. Exodus 5.10. Mm, you see the mocking there? Thus says the Lord. No, thus says Pharaoh. He had no idea what he was getting himself into. All right. Thus says Pharaoh. Well, we also see uh, that God will display his great power. That this was not, you could consider it a battle, but the victory was already won. God was going to use Pharaoh to make a point. We also see the Lord in his distinct identity as a covenant keeper. He was a covenant keeper. In Exodus 6.5, moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel from the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I remembered my covenant. We see the Lord is supreme above all in Exodus 8.10. And he said, tomorrow, Moses said, be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. The Lord is omnipotent. You see his great power. He was going to show the Egyptians his great power with all the plagues, the now into blood, the frogs, the gnats, the flies, the diseased cattle, the boils on man, the hailstorm, the locusts, the darkness. If you think about it, you look at how God controlled the littlest of things. There's not one atom that is a rogue atom. R.C. Sproul. There is not one rogue atom in the universe. And he controlled little gnats. We see superheroes that can talk to animals. Oh, but God was way beyond that. He created it. And of course, they would obey. And God was showing the people, not only his people, but these pagan nations that I created all things. And even the gnats obey. But see, as man who carries the ultimate disobedience, the, the cream of his creation, the free will to disobey God that many you hold to. As we see, we'll see what free will gets uh, man into. And not only that, the finalized display that 
the Egyptians would see as the parting of the Red Sea. And when you think about the parting of the Red Sea, this miracle, if anybody has ever walked through a marshland or, or even through a place that once had water, even for a week and now it's dried up, it takes a long time to dry a riverbed. So this would have taken almost a year, a year to, that have, to have dried up. But it said something uniquely. It said that God parted the Red Sea and they walked across on what? Dry land. That's very, he put that word in there specifically. Not only did he part the Red Sea, it was dry. Uh, there is a painting that I like, um, and it shows the parting of the Red Sea, and it shows the cracking in the, in the cracking of the, of the soil to show you just how dry it was. Just that implication there of that miracle that God will put on display. And not only that these, pl- these, these plagues will uh, be a pestilence to this nation, this pagan nation, it mocked their gods as well. The god of Ra, the sun god, when the darkness came, the frogs for fertility, he mocked their gods. He said, this is who you worship? I will turn them against you. These idols that you have carved out, I will mock your god. You'll say, thus says Pharaoh, who are your little g-gods? They cannot stand against me. And we see also that the Lord will uh, be displayed as a conqueror. Uh, Not only defeating the great Pharaoh, we'll see that God will give you a hint of the conquest to come when he defeats Amalek in chapter 17. So he's going to display himself as the conqueror. Also the Lord is provider. When the Lord heard the people's grumbling regarding food, he fed them. When he heard their complaining about slavery, he brought them out. And just like everything else, he did this. The reason why he did this was for this reason. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. There's that name again. Ayah. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. Please, there's no mistaking. You see, all this was done, not so we could have a story about Moses, not so we can have a story about a Pharaoh. As a matter of fact, do we even know who this Pharaoh was? We don't. His name is not even mentioned. Matter of fact, even the historians debate about this. They go from a woman who wore a beard and was a pharaoh. They assume during uh, Joseph's time, who may have had a son, to Ramses. We know that they came out of the place of Ramses, but they say, well, it couldn't have been Ramses because the time period is too long. So it's unclear. I mean, even when Paul references back to Exodus, he doesn't even mention the name of this pharaoh. Do you think that Moses knew the name of this Pharaoh? But it wasn't important, was it? What was important? The Lord. It says, then you shall know that I am indeed the Lord. And this is the overarching theme of this book. The one thing that he wanted to make clear was the identity, the separation between him, God, Elohim, and all the other false gods that people would worship. We also see, as our second theme I'd like to look at, is a pattern of redemption. We have the issue of bondage. We see the people of Israel were captive in physical slavery and oppression. The remedy was the Lord made provisions. As a matter of fact, 
when it says that the Lord heard their cry, I'm sure they were crying out before that particular time. So what is he saying when he said the Lord heard their cry? It simply means that his predestined time has now come near. The time that God has set in eternity past to bring his people out has now come. I'm sure the years before Moses was even 80, that was 80-year gap there, God was in preparation, right? Because Moses was 80 when he came back to take his people out. So even then, he was in preparation. This is, no, this is not a sporadic thing that God did, and we have to understand that. It wasn't that God is not a reactor to situations, okay? He, he proactively predestines everything. He just, we're reactors. We see a situation and react to it. We try to plan, but our plans can be thwarted. God's plan can never be thwarted. And so when he said he heard their cry, he simply means that it's now time to bring what I set forth in eternity past to come to pass. The result is the Lord leads his people out of Egypt where they can worship him and have fellowship. And that is the pattern of redemption, oppression and bondage, God's remedy and solution, and the result, which is worship and fellowship with God. This pattern is continued throughout history of redemptive history. We see in Psalms 130, 7-8, Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord, same name, Ayah, there is steadfast love. And with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. And we see that the ultimate issue of this redemption was just not physical bondage. As you see, God was able to show you the example of once you come out of slavery, you're still actually a slave to something else. And Israel had another taskmaster. What was Israel's other taskmaster? Sin. Sin was a taskmaster. And God would display this and put it on display for 40 years in the wilderness that Israel was in bondage to this sin. And God would make a resolution for this sin. And then ultimately they would have fellowship with God. So we go to our second theme, God's grace through substitutionary sacrifice. We see this in the Passover. Exodus 12, 12 to 13, we'll read, For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and all the gods of Egypt. Mind you, this gods is lowercase, as it should be. I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plagues will befall you to destroy you, and I will strike the land of Egypt. You see, the people of Israel were chosen, not because they were mighty in number. God allowed them to multiply, and not for anything else other than God's good pleasure. God set his grace and his mercy on upon these people who would soon spread to even the Gentiles. But God used this killing of the firstborn 
and the way to escape this as an example of what was to come, the substitutionary atonement, which is ultimately Jesus Christ. As we see John 1 and 29, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, behold, the Lamb of God. So while they sacrificed the lamb and put the blood over the doorpost and they obeyed God and those who did obey God were redeemed and saved, we see that Jesus Christ is ultimately the Redeemer. And God set this example in the reality of when he said, kill the firstborn. And I want, to, I want you to understand that these words are important. He didn't say murder. He said kill. And he's, God doesn't simply take a life. He stops giving it because he's sovereign. And we must understand that about God's sovereignty. All men are destined for death. And if the people of Israel did not apply the door, the blood on the door, and men obedient, their firstborns would have been taken. And this is what we have to understand, that all men have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And God uses display to show that. And a sacrifice must be made to atone for sin. So he set this example in Egypt by killing of the firstborn. So, speaking of God's sovereignty, we see that the purpose of redemption is for God to set aside and bring to himself a people of his choosing. In Exodus 4, to 23, we see, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, Let my son go, that he shall serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn. We see that God hardens the heart, turning man over to their depraved ways and mind. We, don't, we see God hardening his heart after Pharaoh already had a hardened heart. So what does this mean? Did God, did Pharaoh not have a choice? Did, was Pharaoh coerced into disobeying God? No, we see Pharaoh disobeying God on his own. So what does it mean when it said that God will harden his heart. What does it mean? It simply means this, that God is not at liberty to save or soften the heart of any man. That's what grace is. Grace is getting something you don't deserve. And what is mercy? Not getting what you do deserve. And so God said, this Pharaoh, he hates me. I'm going to continue to let him hate me. As a matter of fact, I'm going to aid in what he wants to do anyway. So it's not simply that Pharaoh did something that he did not want to do. He just excelled at it. And God made sure he did to display his glory. Then the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I might show these signs of mine among them. This was so that God can display his ultimate power. So, let's get into the fifth thing. Was God's motive. God's motive. What was God's motive? Exodus 7 explains, I will take you to be my people 
and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Again, repeated in Exodus 14, 4, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will, let, I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, and they did so. God is Lord over all. Doesn't mean, it doesn't take your belief to make him your Lord in a sense of that he has sovereign control over all his creation. If an oven is hot, it is hot. Does not need you to believe it to be true. And it is this way with God. And God, even though these Egyptians would have all these gods, lowercase g's, all these gods, God was going to let them see that he is the one and only true God. This God of Israel was indeed the, the God and creator of the world. And he was going to make it known. And so he used these signs and he used man's iniquity to get glory, as he will do throughout all of history. As you read through Exodus and as you study these scriptures, you notice that we didn't talk much about Pharaoh. We didn't talk much about the people of Israel. More so, it was focused on God. And God wanted to make sure that his identity was known. I find it interesting. There's a blog. It's a, it's a, he has a YouTube page as well. It's called The Atheist Teaches the Bible. Okay? I find it funny that they even have these sort of things. It's, if you don't believe in something, why do you spend all your life into disprove what you don't believe? However, uh, on there, there's, there were some questions on this forum. And one of the questions were, or statements was, the problem I have with this bedtime story is God punishes the innocent and not Pharaoh. For these people were just living in the land. What did they have to do with this Pharaoh? So are you able to answer that question? Are you able to apologetically defend the faith if someone were to come to you with that statement? Another one. This doesn't make sense. Moses was raised Egyptian. He would not have worshipped this Hebrew God. He would have worshipped the gods of Egyptians. Hmm. What comes to your mind when you have to give an answer for that statement? What comes to my mind is the sovereignty of God. And it should be the hope for us all that it doesn't matter our circumstances in which we were raised. If God wants you to be his, you shall be his. It doesn't matter. You are not a product of your environment. You are a product of the sovereignty and the will and the grace and the supplication of God. Here's another question. Couldn't have God softened Pharaoh's heart instead of hardening it? I mean, this form, and that could have been a genuine, unique question, and this form is a good place to maybe have some ministry, not to get into an argument, but maybe you'll find somebody to minister to, but I would have, I'd love to answer that question. Couldn't he have? What's the answer to that? Could have God softened Pharaoh's heart? Could have God redeemed Pharaoh? He could have. Is he obligated to? He is not obligated. And that's the definition of what? Grace. 
grace. He, did, he decided to let Pharaoh do what he wanted. This is the free will. When people say we have free will, this is what it looks like. It looks like the ultimate rebellion against God. No matter what comes against you, no matter all the signs, no matter the plagues, no matter the killing of his firstborn, you would thought that would have been it. Let him go, Pharaoh, just on that common knowledge. But the free will, the, the ultimate drive to rebel against God will lead you ultimately to your death. There is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it leads to death. So, our last and final theme that we will discuss is after a people came over from the famine, after a people who came over in a Jewish time were put into slavery, oppressed, and that's the, that's the overarching of history, even historically, in other cultures, if a people gets too great, put them in chains. Put them in bondage so they don't overpower you. So they don't realize that, hey, they actually could overpower us and take us just by number alone. And they came out of Egypt with great signs and wonders with their firstborns. <laughs> Not only that, they pillaged the Egyptians. Could you imagine the mourning, the weeping, the crying, and while a mother is holding her dead child, you say, give me your gold and your jewels. God said they will come out not empty-handed, and that prophecy was fulfilled on that day. I couldn't imagine that. Could you imagine your child passing away and someone saying, I need your clothes, I need your jewelry, and they say, take it, take it. And then they go out into the wilderness where they're going to learn how to worship God. He's going to teach them what it would take to worship and to be in his presence. And God's going to make them provisions to dwell among them and also to worship him. And we see in chapter 15 that after their redemption, we see the song of Moses. The song of Moses. And it, this is how it should be. It should not just be for one particular time. It should be always. When we are redeemed, and we have been redeemed, we should be filled with worship, songs of praise, songs of Zion. And it should be fruitful in our lives so that man can see our good works and glorify our, our Lord. So I challenge you with this today. As you read through Exodus, and all the Bibles of the Old Testament are new. See God. See the Lord. See Ayah. See the one and true God, the one who gave us breath and life. Don't see yourself. Moses was just a mouthpiece. He was a tool. He didn't want to even go. God had to convince him to go. Oh, Lord, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not a man of many words, of great speech. Who made your mouth? Right? So God uses us as vessels and all that we do and all that we have is for the Lord. And speaking of that, just remember, they came out with great possessions. Now at that time, they had no idea what for or why, but we'll get into that next time because it's amazing to see 
when we talk about what we have and what is the Lord's. Let's pray. Lord, uh, we thank you, Lord, for your scripture. Lord, we thank you, Lord, that uh, we can understand your scripture because you gave us the Holy Spirit and we're equipped with him and we're sealed up with him so that we may have understanding so that hearing we may understand my father and Lord uh, let our light shine so that the world may not see us but they may see you and they will inquire who is this God who is this God whom they worship And that we will be able to explain who this God is and what he is capable of and how he can free man from their sin, their bondage. And so let man see, Lord, as you change your heart, let them see that they are indeed in bondage to sin. That they may be redeemed and saved and set free. Not to do their own thing, but once we're set free, the whole goal and premise is to worship you. So continue to teach us how to worship you in spirit and truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.